All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for giving, giving us the anchor of our faith, this gospel reality that is the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did that wonderful work on a cross 2,000 years ago for which we are most grateful and thankful for. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 19. Go to uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 with me. Let's start with some appropriate scripture. Um, there's a lot of things that the Spirit's been saying now for a couple of months. And we're in a battle. And you have to remember that. I was discussing this with Deacon Johnson uh, this morning, how the wear and tear on the soul really is, and I don't know how it is for all of you, and I hope you've been reading your own Bibles, but um, just sharing the wear and tear and why I need to take breaks every three months or so is because if you read the Bible... Um, and you're in it all the time, what you see is it's a battle. Honest to goodness, it's just battle after... I just finished up again going through Jeremiah. It's just a war zone. There's just always, always, always these battles upon battles upon battles. You see it in life, fair statement, right? You go to work, you go, you go home... But then you go into the scripture, and guess what's right there? More battles and wars, and people being ridiculous. And then the sin nature just flaring out of control and arrogant. And then I'm writing the book on arrogance. Not the book, a book on arrogance. And uh, it makes me contemplate all kinds of things that wore out in a person's soul. So uh, just an interesting artifact that I was sharing with Deacon Johnson today, and he was in complete agreement that uh, the same things are going on in his own soul as well. So don't be, um, don't be discouraged if you find that you get wearisome after a while. Um, stick with it. Stick in the Word of God. Um, God the Holy Spirit knows just when to lift you back up. Uh, also be encouraged that you might be that person, you know, when the Holy Spirit knocks and says, you know, just pick up the phone. Say hello. Write a little note. Send a little text. Whatever. You might be that person that encourages another person. Show up to class. That might be that thing, and you don't know. Um, just food for thought. First uh, Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, Yet, for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight 
the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So here's a sort of battle cry from senior to junior shepherd. Paul says, fight the good fight, Timothy, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Just a little background on faith and faith. The first refers to a continuation of believing the truth. The second refers to the content of the gospel. In other words, a false gospel doesn't save. Look at what he says. Keeping faith in a good conscience, however, these folks on the other side, some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In other words, they stopped abiding in, they stopped listening to, they stopped gaining knowledge of truth, of the gospel. Up here on the board, a good conscience. Uh, We did a whole series on this not that long ago. It's been coming up an awful lot, folks. Uh, Conscience, again, it's going to be interesting to see how he brings it about in the lessons. God has given each of us a conscience that acts like a rudder on a ship, guiding us. Those who ignore their good conscience, turning away from the faith, are the apostates who suffer shipwreck. Again, a good conscience. God has given each of us a good conscience, or a conscience that acts like a rudder on a ship guiding us. Those who ignore their good conscience, turning away from the faith, are the apostates who suffer shipwreck. Paul was encouraging Timothy to press on in the face of all the opposition he was facing from the false teachers at the time, many of whom had received the gospel truth already, but chose a different road. And he amplifies the stakes of the game by pointing out the apostate's ultimate judgment. If you hear the gospel... That's what an apostate is, someone who actually hears it and then turns away. Think of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. The person, that's the apostate, the one who quote-unquote falls away after tasting the gospel. Their ultimate judgment is shipwreck. We ought to glean some motivation from such scripture because we all have our own ministries to tend to, not just pastors like myself. That is a pastoral epistle. Uh, Obviously, it's to Timothy who needed the encouragement at the time from Paul. But we all have our own ministries to tend to, and the principles apply. We are all enlisted as soldiers for Christ. Go to 2 Timothy 2.1. 2 Timothy 2.1. So this evening is a bit of a transition lesson. Done an awful lot of work. I kind of alluded to it on Sunday and, uh, excuse me, on Thursday and Sunday that the that running boat analogy was sort of the culmination of the gospel and salvation aspects of the three-part facets of the series, leaving sanctification outstanding. 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong, how? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk more and more about grace. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life 
so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So again, another battle cry. He's even using the military lingo, uh, a soldier for Christ. Um, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And may we each be encouraged as this decrepit world continues to pervert the true gospel. Uh, I find it increasingly difficult, I'm sure you do as well, to even turn on the radio. Uh, even the so-called Christian channels are have a little bit of a taint to them, a little bit off here and there. And it's difficult sometimes to stay tuned. As Paul says to Timothy here, we will suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ. Even Jesus warned of this. Uh, look at John fifteen twenty up here on the board. <coughs> Jesus knew these same things were about to uh, befall uh, his disciples. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master if they persecuted me. They will, not maybe, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's Jesus Christ. They will persecute you. In other words, you will be persecuted. One last hurrah from Paul to Timothy for the sake of our own encouragement. Go to 1 Timothy 6.12. 1 Timothy 6.12. Again, this is all encouragement that we can share in. Paul was writing to Timothy for obvious reasons. The context is clear. Uh, Timothy was always under assault, not just for his uh, relative young age, but also for those that were consistently hovering around, uh, peddling things like um, Judaism or some kind of a perverted gospel that included uh, works, salvation by works, or works in general to uh, add to the favor of God. So that's anti-grace. First Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Again, the battle cry, fight the good fight of faith. And that I mean, I'm not going to say, like I did on Sunday, go tattoo that somewhere on your body, but it's a good mantra to have. It's, a, it's not a bad thing to be a scrapper in the spiritual life, to, to have this sense of, you know what, it's time to fight. I can be on the gridiron, or I can be up in the grandstands with my pom-poms. Which one do you want to be? Where's all the action? On the gridiron. Get dirty, get some bruises, suffer for Christ, be a good soldier, get shot at, get wounded, whatever. He's got your back. So it's a good thing to have this always up in the front of your mind, fighting the good fight of faith. And so Paul says this to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we are not fighting. There's the battle cry, and then there's the reality that we are not fighting a new battle. 
the same battle uh, cry um, applies today. Fight the good fight of faith. So we're not fighting a new battle, as the Spirit reminded us of on Sunday, to borrow from Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes 1.9. There's nothing new under the sun. Your, your battle, your complaint, your moaning and groaning, it's not new. And just remember that this day, there's someone who went through something worse. Let's be honest. There's someone who has your little problem multiplied by 10. And it's possible, who knows, it's possible that they're complaining less than you are. You know, just saying. There's nothing new under the sun. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been under attack since the fall in the garden. So if you have it correct, and you are taking your ministry seriously, and you are trying to go out and fulfill the great commission to go out and make disciples, uh, to go share the good news of Jesus Christ, then you're going to be persecuted. And whatever you stand for, uh, and you know how the world likes to make things personal, although the Scripture says if they reject it, they're not rejecting you. So even if they tell you it's you, it's not you. They're rejecting Christ. You're going to be under attack. And you always have to remember that. For example, we noted that relative to the gospel of Christ being under attack since the fall in the garden, we noted that Cain rejected the gospel of grace. There is such a thing as the good news of grace. Granted, he may not have understood the person and work of Jesus Christ, but he was certainly privy to the doctrines his parents would have taught him. And since they learned grace from God and therefore would have understood salvation by grace, they would have trained up their two boys, Cain and Abel, under that truth, which for all intents and purposes was the gospel. So again, our good labor the past couple of months is not a novel concept. It's not like the gospel is new and therefore... If the gospel is around, then there's going to be what? Antagonism around. So this whole problem statement is not a new one. Different gospels have been around since the dawn of mankind. You could think about even typology with Cain. What was Cain? Cain thought he could cover with what? The works of the sweat of his brow. That's a different gospel. That's salvation by works. That's deliverance by works. That's just typology. Cain had his own gospel. So it's not a new concept, folks. There's lots of different Gospels up here on the board. God was pleased with Abel because he was grace-oriented. His good work of a blood sacrifice being the proof of his faith in God. Cain lived by a different Gospel, one that included human works, which are the antithesis of grace. So one man was living by grace and set free. That was Abel. Another man was on a treadmill because his sacrifice was by the sweat of his brow. He had a different gospel, a gospel by works. DJ and I were talking about that today as well. That's why it's important to include uh, something like um, repentance in the gospel presentation because if you tell someone that they... Well, let me put it this way. Part of the good news is that you can never... Be righteous on your own. That's good news. You see, a lot of people say they have this notion that giving up the self-life is some terrible thing. 
But if you have the gospel correct in your soul, you realize that giving up the self-life is actually good news because the world tells you the self-life is what you have to be made righteous by. And what do you get out of that besides frustration, anxiety, and whatever? So it's a really good part of the good news that I don't have to depend on myself, that I can turn away from that thing towards this. But a different gospel doesn't include all of those details. Fast forward to Paul's day, and we note the same issue with the rejection of grace. The Judaizers were hauntingly present, always trying to spoil the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So they had their own sort of specific different gospel. The Judaizers' different gospel. The message of a gospel of works was their disease and they spread it abundantly and with meticulous precision. These were intelligent people with lots of connections in society. And so they spread it like a disease. Salvation by works. Deliverance by works. And they were very precise and meticulous and intelligent. They make very dangerous foes, in other words. The apostles were constantly, therefore, fighting the good fight of faith. Allah, 1 Timothy 1 and 6. We have entire denominations even today that have us up in arms this same way. We don't have the luxury of relaxing. We should be soldiers. We should consider ourselves soldiers. Why? Because in many ways the gospel's under more attacks today than ever. Think about it. With the advent of communication technology, everybody's sharing ideas. And you know what happens when people share ideas? You get a bunch of liberals instead of conservatives. I say that right? Close enough. So we have entire denominations even today that have us up in arms the same way. But I'd argue there are many sources of different Gospels that many people bear beautifully, to borrow from Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.4. Up here on the board, I was just thinking about this. What kind of Gospel sources do we have today? Where are people getting their quote-unquote Gospels from? If it's not the gospel truth, if they're not picking up at a, at a church like this one or from the um, sources or the resources on a, on a website like ours, or they're maybe reading their own Bibles, where are they getting it from? I often wonder that. Where are you getting your thoughts about God from? Why do you, how do you even know how much He loves you? How do you know that? How do you stake such a claim to Jesus Christ and you know the first thing about Him? Where are you getting this from? How do you know you're going to heaven? How do you know you have eternal life? How do you know you're saved? Do you even know you need to be saved? Oh, you just want a ticket to heaven. Which one is this? Where are you getting your gospel from? What's the good news? So I was just brainstorming different gospel sources today. Hollywood systematically portrays, I'd better be good so I can get to heaven. I mean, every movie I ever see now, unless it's a Christian one, has the exact same thing. Oh, I'm going to be bad, so I'm going to go to hell. I better be good enough so I can go to heaven. That's Hollywood. Society rejects the idea of a Savior not being oneself. I want to be like Mike. I want to be Mike. I want to be my own Savior. I want to be my own self-made man. That's what society pumps into the heads of our kids. So society rejects the idea of a Savior not being oneself or a self-chosen chosen Savior that isn't Jesus. Fictional literature is often premised on saviors of a variety of forms. Think about it. You can, heck, you can read a 
a monster book, a fictional monster book, and there's a Savior in there somewhere. Saviors are sometimes human, sometimes not. I was thinking of Transformers or the Terminator, these, these creature things, these machines. They're the saviors. Even holidays, last, I think it was the last Christmas or the Christmas before, I taught on Santa Claus. You better be good or however that goes. I forgot. I think I blacked it out on purpose. Right? Even holidays are based on works programs. Not grace. So there's lots of ways that a, a, a young mind or an innocent, quote-unquote, innocent mind could coddle together a gospel of their own. And, you know, as long as it wasn't too offensive to their friends and neighbors, everybody would say, yeah, I'm good with that. Same God, same God. All right, let's go. I'll see you in heaven, my friend. You may think that these are ramblings of an aging man an ultra-conservative one, and you may be right. However, they are true. Here's why. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You can't change the gospel, folks. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that God doesn't care about man's opinion of him not being, quote, with the times. What really is disgusting is when someone claiming to be a Christian, and only God knows for sure, turns their attention to a different gospel, which, in effect, means to turn away from the very concept and fullness of grace. They're intrinsically bound, folks. There's no way of getting around it. If you turn away from the true gospel, you're essentially turning away from grace. If it's not all God then you have a little part in it, or someone has a little part in it. So if it's not the true gospel, you're turning away from grace simultaneously. As noted on Sunday, the Judaizers peddled a perverted gospel during Paul's time, so he was placed in defensive mode quite often. Go to Galatians 1.3. Galatians 1.3. So you see that the Spirit's using grace as a pivot point, and it makes total sense. Moving from, reminding us of the presence of grace at salvation, but that it's not, it's not two separate graces. Grace is grace, and we'll talk about this. I'm, I'm jumping the gun here. Galatians 1.3. Grace, Paul's often starts his epistles with grace. Grace to you, and closes them that way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from his or this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. So the rescuer, he does all the work, and who gets the glory? He does rightfully so. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different, that's heteros, it's a counterfeit, a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Those are the Judaizers. That's the context in Galatians. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Now, I don't know about you, but that's 
uh, quite a statement, folks. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man, any man, that's all of us too, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. What was Paul saying? Teach a perverted gospel and you are to be accursed. Now what that means, that's between that person and the Lord. How God's going to correct the person who's been peddling a false gospel? I don't know. He can do whatever he wants. But that's what scripture says. Teach a perverted gospel and you are to be accursed. In any case, up here on the board, again, there's nothing new under the sun, so says Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1.9. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been under attack since the fall in the garden. Cain rejected grace, as did the religious Jews during Paul's time, as do legalistic folks today. So this is not a novel concept. And what the Spirit's doing here with the congregation is he's bringing us back to grace proper up here on the board it's impossible for anyone to reject grace and be saved. It's impossible. For the entire premise of salvation is that it is performed by grace. Again, it's impossible for anyone to reject grace and be saved. For the entire premise of salvation is that it is performed by grace. Fast forward to the church age. Without grace, there's no gospel. Without grace, there's no gospel. To fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must understand that he is the very manifestation of grace. John 1, 14-17. Go there, John 1, 14. Without grace, there's no gospel. There's no good news. So one of the things the Spirit's been doing, whether you realize it or not, is He's been broadening your perspectives. He's asking you not to look at the gospel and then sanctification, even as, even though we can architect it this way with systematic theology, even as necessarily separate events. As far as God's concerned, from eternity past, as far as He sees things, in the absence of the construct of time, if you're saved, you're sanctified if that makes any sense. And that's purely a Godward perspective, of course. But again, without grace, there's no gospel. To fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must understand that He is the very manifestation of grace. 1 John 1.14 will help us with what the Spirit's bringing about here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. That's John the Baptist, of course. For he existed before me. For his fullness, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. What does that mean? What does that mean to you right now? What does, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. What does that even mean? Well, to help with that, up here on the board, <clears throat> refers to the superabundance of God's grace. Believers are especially appreciative at salvation and increasingly so as a part of sanctification. 
But these are not, I'm trying to get you to start thinking the way that God sees things as well, which is these are not separate events, even though that's how we choose to think about it. Okay, there's salvation, that's that moment in time when I was saved, and then there was this other kind of grace that came on the scene, and that helped sanctify me, and it was this. No, to God it's grace. It's one big package deal. If you accept my son, if you accept the gospel, then you get all of my grace. You get a super abundance of grace. And the only thing holding you back at that juncture is really you. How quickly you accelerate this kind of a thing is really you. But grace upon grace refers to the superabundance of God's grace. Believers are especially appreciative at salvation and increasingly so as part of sanctification. The beauty about grace is that once a person is saved, the pipeline is now open to them. It's grace upon grace. And I, was, I mentioned this earlier. The only thing standing in their way is their own disbelief. What's the only reason why you don't accept God's grace even now? You don't believe it. Fair. You don't believe it. You hear it, you read it in the Bible, and you literally do not believe it. So it takes some time. He says, I have the very best in store for you. Isn't that in the Bible? Well, why don't you believe it then? Why are you still off running off trying to make something of yourself outside the grace of God? Why are you trying to prove yourself? Why are you trying to do things outside of the grace of God? Because if you believed everything he said, you wouldn't have any problems. What are you complaining about? Did, you, did anybody complain today? I can't even tell you how many things I complained about today. Ridiculous. My family was like, shut up! I'm like, It's vomiting. Right? And it's not, it's, it's not right. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a certain thing to it. But it's not right. What do I have to complain about? What do you have to complain about? We're all going to heaven. We already won. Shouldn't we just be rejoicing like 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 to 17? Right? Shouldn't we just be praying without ceasing? Giving thanks and everything because that's what's pleasing to God? No. I don't have, you know, my pet, my pet monkey won't fetch me a beer anymore. Oh, you have such problems. Right? What's our problems? If we believed what's actually in the Bible, all the grace that's there, we would trust in it, and then he would just keep pouring it out. He'd say, good, good for you. I'm just going to keep pouring out more. So the only thing standing in people's way is their own disbelief when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it. The Bible speaks similarly about one's heart after salvation as it does before. What keeps a person from being saved? They don't believe in grace. They say, there's got to be something i got to do, right? I mean, i got to do something to get into heaven. i got to do something. Well, then you don't believe in grace. But you don't actually believe that the whole thing is scot-free. That's the same problem for the person who's saved. The same one who's stunted. The same one who's not delivered in a different sense is the one who doesn't believe. They can read it. They can hear a bald guy spew it out from a pulpit a thousand times. But they don't believe it. It's, you know, it's the, 
I tell you from the pulpit, as your shepherd, take Tuesday nights. Do something useful with it in the Bible, something. Trust me, you'll be blessed. Every person I know that's been doing it is like, this is awesome. Every person that's not, (laughs) whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? Because you don't actually believe it when God the Holy Spirit says, hey, why don't you do a little studying on that free time you got now? Because that's the very best thing you could possibly do with your time. Not playing Call of Duty. There's only like two people in here that know what that is. It's a video game. Right? Not visiting your favorite web portal or, you know, going on uh, the latest and greatest social networks or being a, what do you call them, a meme? What do you call those things? A meme? I don't know. I'm getting old. I used to know technology then you don't believe it, do you? Because that's really, your actions speak so loud. You don't believe it. So anyways, the Bible speaks similarly about one's heart after salvation as it does before. One of the most beautiful accounts of saving faith and this opening up, I always think of it, the Bible presents it just like, it's like an opening up, like a flower, like a rose, just once you're saved, he just opens it up and it's just beautiful, thing. One of the most beautiful accounts of saving faith in this opening up of a person's heart to a knowledge of greater grace is the account of the great reformer himself, Martin Luther. Before we get to him, James wrote on this greater grace. I'll give you the amplified of James 4.6. We've seen 4.6 many times in the past month. But he gives us more and more grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to defy sin and live an obedient life, now get this, that reflects both our faith and our gratitude for salvation. That's that gospel reality. I taught a series, a short series called Living the Gospel Reality. In other words, you should need no other form of encouragement or anything, technically speaking, than knowing how much He did for you to save you. But we all forget and we're implacable and we're awful creatures. Through the power of the Holy Spirit to defy sin and live an obedient life that reflects both our faith and our gratitude for salvation. In other words, when He changes you, you when, when you're saved, you have something to be grateful for for the rest of your life. Well, what the heck is our problem then? What are we complaining about today? Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud and haughty, but, I can, or, but continually gives the gift of grace to the humble who turn away from self-righteousness or works, in other words. Again, arguably, one of the most beautiful accounts of this opening up of grace in a person's heart is that of Martin Luther. When he read, now hold your thumb, this verse, Romans 1.17, this is the one that blew his mind. And you say, man, I've read that thing a thousand times. What's wrong with that guy? I know that. I'm not the great reformer. (laughs) 
But you see, what happens is, folks, once you've been through the Bible a few times and once you've seen verse upon verse and this kind of a thing, either God's a liar and the faith just grows stale or he does something better. The aroma of it increases, however you'd like to look at it. The vividness of color brightens up, however you'd like to look at it. Everything becomes more beautiful. Everything becomes more unified. Everything becomes clearer. How about that? That's the beauty of going back to a verse like this, with humility. With humility. Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Martin Luther, who was, or who was the man who posted the 95 Theses, most of you know about that, supposedly on the front door of the Catholic All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, had this tremendous revelation once he realized what the Holy Scripture was actually saying. There's a really well-done four-minute synopsis of this in video format by a man, a pastor by the name of R.C. Sproul, that I'll quote from here for your edification. But if you want the link, I'll send it to you. Just ask for it. It's a four-minute video. But here's some quotes on that thing that happened to Martin Luther, the great reformer. Luther was looking now at the Greek word that was in the New Testament, not the Latin word, the word dikaios or dikaiosune, which didn't mean to make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. And this was the moment of awakening for Luther. He said, quote, You mean here Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own? And so Luther said, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine? It's what he called a justitia alienum, that's Latin, an alien righteousness. A righteousness that belongs properly to someone else. It's a righteousness that is extra nos outside of us. Namely, the righteousness of Christ. And Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. And this was a monk. So you see, it's not even about intellect, it's about the heart. It's what he's been teaching us for two months now. Like I said, those quotes are the tail end of a four-minute video from Sproul on that magnificent event in Luther's life. And do not underestimate the ripple effect it had, for you are sitting in a church that technically is Protestant, though I'm not big on such designations. What do we know about faith from Scripture? The righteous man shall what? Live by faith. What do we know about faith? Think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. How do we receive it? By grace. The righteous man shall live by faith. We receive faith by grace. What the Spirit is highlighting this evening, and yes, we are now beginning to move to the third area of our current series, namely sanctification, 
what the Spirit is highlighting is that grace is the keystone element of God's interaction with man. In other words, not only is it how He saves us, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 clearly states that, but it is also how He continues on and sanctifies us. You might say, I already knew that. Then I wonder why God the Holy Spirit captured the events in, say, Galatians 3, which we'll get to. These are, concentrate, these are, so not only is it how he saves us, but he also sanctifies us by this same grace. These are unified concepts, not to be understood separately. That's what I need you to dwell on this evening. These are the things that he's been showing me. These are unified concepts, not to be understood separately. Dwell on that. To amplify God's grace, unfathomable, the unfathomable grace of God. Grace simply cannot be understated for the simple fact that mere man cannot fathom all of it. Job 9.10, Romans 11.33, Ephesians 3.8. Go to Job 9.10. Job 9.10. This is the beauty. That means you'll never learn of all of it. You understand? You could read your Bible. You could be Joe Speed Reader and read your Bible 68 times in the next month, and you're still not going to get all of His grace. That's the beauty of it. So you see, as Luther realized, walking through that gate, being saved, is just the very beginning. It isn't until then that you have the faculties even to realize the fullness of grace or at least to whatever is available to man job 9 10 who does great things unfathomable unfathomable and wondrous works without number unfathomable boy that must give me a fit tonight unfathomable (laughs) is that hard to say is it just me why am I having trouble? Better not be having a stroke. That's all I need. <laughs> Tongues like over here somewhere. Unfathomable. Oh well. Just another test. How about Romans eleven thirty three? Glad you guys think it's funny. I think it might be happening. It's all right. It's all good. It's all good. Romans eleven thirty three. On fathomable. <laughs> Creepy when that happens, isn't it? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Go to Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 3.8 To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I just have to slow down like I'm doing with my running, my cycling, and everything else in my life. It's tough getting old. Again, this is what blew Martin Luther's mind back in the, the 1500s. 
that his grace was beyond anything he could have possibly imagined. Again, up here on the board, grace simply cannot be understated for the simple fact that mere man cannot fathom all of it. Job 9.10, I should say overstated. Job 9.10, Romans 11.33, Ephesians 3.8. This is the epiphany that Martin Luther had when he fully understood Romans 1.17's, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And unless you understand that God saves and delivers and sanctifies unholy, unrighteous, undeserving creatures by grace, you won't even be able to accept it, strictly speaking. Consider that for yourselves, which is what Paul had to remind the Galatians of. Go to Galatians 3.3. This is what I was alluding to earlier. Galatians 3.3. Galatians 3.3 Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The instrument of grace, in other words, the pouring out is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So He saved you, He baptized you into union with Christ. He was right there to convict you of the gospel truth. And then what? Now you're going to be perfected by the flesh. If we forget the grace that saved us, we might just, quote, forget the grace that delivers us. Now, back to where we started with this transitional passage. Go to John 1.16. John 1.16. So all the Spirit's trying to do is getting, trying to get you to unify your thoughts on salvation. Don't make them even though it's easier to talk about them as phases, as far as God's concerned, He opens up the gates of grace to you at salvation, if that makes any sense whatsoever. First, uh, John 1.16, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Again, the principle in view up here on the board is grace upon grace refers to the superabundance of God's grace. Believers are especially appreciative at salvation and increasingly so as part of sanctification. And the only thing standing in their way again is their own disbelief. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In this sense, since Jesus calls his own, we might rightly say up here in the board, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ calls his own. This was from Sunday's message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling then to grace. It's not just, in other words, it's not just about getting to heaven. It's not just about getting to live forever in God's presence. It's not just that those things are there, but it's not just about those things. You're being called to grace. And it's grace upon grace. And it's from faith to faith. And the righteous man shall live by faith, which he receives by grace. So you're getting called to a whole reality. 
Grace is a reality. It's a unified reality. It's God. Jesus Christ was what? The fullness of grace and truth. So you're receiving his whole person. Not just bitwise chunks of grace, if that makes any sense. And you have to think broader than a lot of people think about salvation and sanctification. It's not always quite as um, forensic, if you would, to borrow from a popular word as of late, as some would like you to think it is. Concentrate for a moment. <clears throat> the, oh, this calling, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a calling to grace. This calling doesn't start and end at salvation. As the Apostle John stated, it's grace upon grace. Or as Jesus himself stated up here on the board, Luke 8, 18. So take care how you listen. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. That's the principle, do you remember? When I was early on in the ministry teaching about what true humility looked like. And how God will just keep pouring more grace upon the humble person. That's what James 4, 6 says. He gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. This theme keeps running through and through and through. It starts, obviously, at salvation. But that's really only the starting point. Or how about with his parable of the vine and the branches? Go there. John 15, 1. John 15, 1. Speaking of grace and speaking of salvation and sanctification as a unified concept. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That's you. You're that second case. Remember, we talked about this two months ago. If you're saved, you will bear fruit. And if you bear fruit, he's going to prune you. And pruning sometimes could hurt. If you're a plant, it probably hurts, right? Oh, look at that. I lost lost an arm. Oh, he's just pummeled me in the head, you know. So pruning um, may hurt, may not, but he promises that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So you see this whole idea, John was famous for the word abiding, you see? This concept of abiding, it's an intimacy. So you, when you grow in the grace and knowledge of God, you grow in the intimacy of grace itself. And that's where your perpetual or your daily appreciation or your thanksgiving 
give thanksgiving always in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 comes from. It's that you're abiding in him, that you have a relationship. It's not knowledge anymore. This is, this is when truth rises right off the pages. This is the aroma, the, the greater vividness, the colors. This is what he's trying to teach you. He's saying that, you know, don't look at abide and go to the Greek word. Look at abide and understand what it actually means. This is a very personal relationship. You can leave, for some of you, now's the time you can leave some of those elementary things behind. You're already convinced of all these baseline things. You've seen the Greek. You've seen the Hebrew. You've understood these baseline things. You've done your own homework. You've been reading your Bible. And now what the Spirit's saying is, this concept that John keeps talking about, abiding, this is what he's talking This is grace upon grace, folks. This is living the gospel reality. This is living every day being ultra grateful that you're even saved. And then living in that. And when you do that, he's going to be right with you. And he's going to prune you and he's going to cultivate you and he's going to watch you bear fruit to his glory. He's going to be right with you every way, every step of the way. Let's finish. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not, and that's, that was Galatians 3.3, 3, right? That was what Paul was saying. What are you doing here? You think now apart from me you can do stuff? No. Apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So you see, that's, uh, that's what grace does after salvation. It bears much fruit which glorifies our Father in heaven. So before we even get into any further details about what sanctification even is, it is important to note that even though some folks sort of, let's say, hyper-doctrinalize salvation and sanctification into separate phases or what have you, and I'm not throwing that under the bus. I understand the reason for it and systematic theology and it helps us to bitwise chew on things, but there comes a certain point where that's not necessary anymore. I believe that the best way to consider such things is the way Jesus described grace through the parable of the vine and the branches. Did he go into any great theology there? No. But did you understand the intimacy? Of course you did. So I believe the best way to consider such things is the way Jesus described grace through the parable of the vine and the branches. Almost every major topic, if you consider it, and I'll ask you to do that this evening or over the weekend, almost every major topic we've covered so far in this 19-part series 
is touched upon in that simple parable. So I challenge you to go home this evening and read it over again to yourselves and look at how wonderfully our Lord is able to pull all the various doctrines together into a simple yet fully powerful parable. And ask yourself when you're doing that, do you see any hyper-doctrinalization in his presentation? Do you see him complicating anything? What's he trying to teach you? He says, abide in me. Like a branch does on the vine. I'm the source. Remember me? The Savior? Your Lord? Remember me? The one you believed in at salvation? The one who literally saved you? Some knowledge of a doctrine didn't save you. Some academic prowess didn't save you. I saved you. The person, Jesus Christ. If you're saved somewhere in your life, you had to believe in that person. You had to put your trust in that person. Grace to Jesus Christ is a way of life. It is uniform in unity and inseparable. Understood as a whole, not a bunch of little parts. And as you go about rereading that passage, and I've got to close, before you let your thoughts go, dwell on that final verse and compare it to how we began the series even. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Go on to the website and look at part four, which is pretty much the front end of where we started with all of this. And have John 15, 8 handy. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We've got some good work in front of us, folks. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank <clears throat>